Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Maddie Vaughan. Maddie is the Senior Programs Manager at Adara Group, working across the areas of maternal, newborn and child health, as well as remote community development and monitoring and evaluation. Prior to working for Adara, Maddie worked in health and higher education policy events, interned for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Rome, and volunteered for a community development organisation in Lima, Peru. Maddie has a Bachelor of Arts with a major in International Relations from the Australian National University and is currently undertaking her Master's of International Public Health with the University of New South Wales. Wow, what a bio. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here and um, I love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. That's that's wonderful. So you have a really interesting role um, within the Adara Group, but the Adara Group itself has a very unique operating model. Can you start by telling us about Adara Development and some of the projects that you're undertaking currently? Yeah, sure. So, um, Adara is 20 years old this year, so 20 years ago it was just a crazy idea dreamt up by our founder, um, an amazing woman called Odette Excel, and a few of her friends who who believed very strongly that there was a way that we could use the power of business to generate um, profits and affect change for people living in poverty. So she set up an organization to do that. So Adara Development is kind of one arm of our, of our model, um, and it's the not-for-profit arm that um, delivers service and and shares knowledge around um, certain areas of expertise in the developing world. So, over the past 20 years, our work has really concentrated on two main areas. Um, one is maternal newborn child health, so helping mums and babies to survive and thrive. And the other is remote community development. So, um, in that arm of our work, we work with some of the most remote communities in the world. <laughs> um, you know, eight days hiking right now from the closest road to some of our villages when we started it was 20 days of hiking so very remote (laughs) and so we're working with these communities to ensure they have access to quality health and education services so it's been an incredible 20-year journey um, and we're really excited about where Adara's at now. Yeah wow it has been and okay so you mentioned that that is one arm of the organization so Adara Development is funded by two corporate advisory businesses Adara Advisors and Adara Partners so this is where the unique operating model kind of becomes apparent so can you tell us about what those businesses do? Yeah, sure. So, um, Adara Advisors was the original business that Odette set up 20 years ago, and it provides services to financial services institutions, banks, insurance companies, um, and essentially it facilitates the introduction of clients that have common business interests um, and 
does things like mergers and acquisitions or establishes new financial or insurance structures. Um, and it also helps with clients with fundraising in the Australian market. So, um, for us, it means since we began, 100% of the profits that are generated by this business come across to support the work of a diet development. So, that was our first business and um, was ticking along really, really well for a long time. But it did rely pretty significantly on the expertise of our founder, Audette. And for Audette, she had found this incredibly rewarding um, life that she led where she got to use her skills and her expertise to do something with incredible purpose and um, to generate quite significant profits to support people living in poverty. So, in 2015, she decided to launch a second business where she wanted to give other people the opportunity to, to feel the way she'd felt um, and to have a life like the life she'd had and to use their skills and expertise to, to support people in need. So, we launched our second business, Adara Partners, in 2015. And um, it's a, another quite <laughs> with another unique structure within our unique structure. So, it's made up of a panel of 16 of Australia's most distinguished and leading financial services leaders. So, um, just to name a few, David Gonski is on the panel, Matthew Grounds, Guy Fowler, Catherine Brenner, just uh, just a handful of the amazing people that we have on our panel. And our panel members work completely pro bono for Adara, providing um, independent and conflict-free advice. And what they do is um, provide strategic advice to leading Australian companies. And again, with 100% of the profits generated coming across to support the work of Adara Development. So, um, that business is still in its infancy, only three years old this year, but already has done some pretty cool things. It's been advising um, some of Australia's leading companies like West Farmers. It's it's advised um, the Australian Football Federation on their media rights, a really diverse range of, um, of mandates that they've undertaken. And these panel members have been incredibly generous with their time. They work completely for free um, and have had, I think, have had that same feeling that Odette had, that there's huge satisfaction to be gained from using um, your skills and something that you're so good at and that you do every day for a bigger purpose. So, it's been a, um, a great success so far and we're really excited about the future of that business. Um, and it's kind of modelled this idea that, you know, um, two words you don't hear in a sentence very often together is pro bono in investment banking. That's <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> a pretty pretty unusual combination, even though things like the legal profession have had those structures in place for a long time. So, it's an exciting moment for the financial services sector to, to see that there's a model around that um, allows them to use their skills and expertise to create um, profits for people in poverty. Yeah. And I love this because the topic that we talk about a lot on the show is how so many people want to help. I mean, I think it's human nature to want to do something to help. And yet it is often so difficult to know exactly how. But mm. to see these people on, who work pro bono and such amazing names, the, the, the people you just mentioned are, as you said, leaders in the sector, to see them doing something so productive with their skills is just is fantastic to hear. Yeah, yeah, we feel very lucky to have their support. And, um, and when Odette launched the business to have Corporate Australia stand behind her, you know, these people work for UBS, Goldman Sachs, um, Deutsche Bank, all these incredible institutions um, that also stood 
side by side with us to kind of launch this off the ground. So very lucky. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So you've explained that the purpose of the advisory businesses is to fund Adara's development, Adara Development's administrative and emergency project costs, meaning that all other donations that go directly to Adara can fund the Adara Development programs as opposed to funding any costs or overheads. Have I got that right? Can you explain that in, in your own words? Yeah, sure. So um, so the, the way that Odette set up the model was that um, she would take on all the burden of admin and infrastructure costs and any additional funds that the businesses generated beyond that would obviously go to programs. So to date, we've, the businesses have donated around $13.1 million to um, Adara Development. And on top of that, we've had about $26 million donated from other donors. So it's about a third of the costs are funded by the business um, and the rest of the costs come from, from our donors. So um, that's been a really important um, model for us for a few reasons. And I think the first is having a business like this underpinning the financial viability of an organization gives us some freedoms that some not-for-profits maybe don't have. And and the biggest one for me working on the program side is the ability to sometimes say no to donors. I think if that's a really hard thing to do. Um, yeah, yeah. We're working in really resource-constrained environments, and so every cent is so important. But sometimes um, we found that donors maybe want things that we can't deliver or that compromise our development philosophy and um, are not kind of aligned with the way that we work. And so an example might be a donor might want to brand a project and put their name on it. And for a Adara, that's not something we would ever do. Our, our projects are community-owned, led, run, um, and we would never kind of brand it. And I think for for some nonprofits that it's really difficult to turn down funds and so often you're compromising on things that you don't want to. So for for me and from a development perspective, having our business means that sometimes we can actually say, you know what, we're not aligned and um, this isn't the right fit for Adara and so we we can say no sometimes, which is quite a, quite a gift, I think. Um, I think the other incredible kind of benefit of this type of model is that we have access to such diverse views and ideas. So in the Sydney office of Adara, we have investment bankers and lawyers sitting side by side with um, development experts. And and you you have this beautiful kind of mashing of ideas and ways of thinking um, that I think benefit both sides of the equation. Um, So the model itself has been incredibly beneficial, I think, for Adara um, and very promising kind of model for the sector. I think it was one of the first of its kind. Obviously, social enterprises are popping up all over the place, but when Odette first started our business um, and this business for purpose model, it was kind of like the sector thought, the NGO sector thought she um, was a money launderer or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and the business sector thought it was just a sweet tax break that she was trying to develop. So it took some time to, to build the credibility, I think, of a social enterprise model, which obviously now is so well accepted and, um, yeah. and more and more are happening. So, yeah. Definitely. And wow, what a pioneer Odette was uh, and, uh, and still is, I presume. Um, doing this it's just incredible and I I really like the point that you've raised that you almost have the luxury of saying no 
now. And the biggest criticism I hear of the not-for-profit sector working with the corporates is that often they have to compromise their values. And I always try to argue, no, you don't. There are organizations out there that won't ask you to compromise your values because their values will be aligned with yours. And I think That's that true. I think that your model really proves that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, finding finding the right people and the right partnerships is really important. And, and um, I think it's, it is, like I said, so difficult for not-for-profits to say no um, when they need funds and when they're trying to do, you know, the, the other big push for a debt to serve this model is the other issue she saw in the sector was that we have these long-term funding needs. You know, we're trying to affect social change, which can often take decades. Um, and yet the funding model for traditional for profits is often on a two or three year grant cycle. And so you are constrained in what you can achieve and what you can do in that time. And so that's the other reason kind of to think about the model is to say that um, with with a model like this, you're not locked into those shorter timeframes. You can, you can, your funding can match the um, kind of the commitment you're making to the community. So I think you can find models and businesses that are that are seeing that in the same way, and and I think partnerships should be built on, yeah, it should be mutually beneficial. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree, and I think the other reason that supporting Adara development may appeal to people is because, as you've said, when you make a donation to Adara there's a very good chance it's not going to any administrative costs or overheads, but rather it's going directly to the project. Is that right? Yeah. So, that is um, that is the offer to the donor. So, 100% of your donation will go directly to programs. Yeah. And I mean, this is such a point of contention in the sector, isn't it? We I feel like every few years, some report comes out and says, this is how high the administrative costs mm. are in, in you know, the, all these not-for-profits. And that really shocks people. But having worked on the other side, I, I know how difficult those administrative costs are. They exist and, and we need mm -hmm. to cover them. We need to pay people's wages. We need to pay our rent. Um, but obviously, it is very appealing for a, for a donor to know that the money that they're donating is going directly to the cause. So, how? I mean, what's your view on that debate? How do you sort of navigate this this debate yeah. between administrative costs and project costs? Yeah, I mean, I think for us at Adara, we believe so passionately in the importance of admin and infrastructure, so much so that Odette set up her businesses to fund that. You know, obviously, she's a, a donor in that sense, like anyone else, and obviously the the programs are the the sexy part of do, of donating like you want the social impact but she um is very firm on the on in her belief that you can't run a car without an engine and so you need to invest in admin you need to ensure that your governance is strong and you need to assure that you have all the things you have that you need in place to deliver quality service to people in need and that you're not um shortchanging the, the beneficiaries for the sake of saving a few dollars in admin and infrastructure. And so, um, because of our model, I guess, we've eliminated the need for us to have that debate with our donors. Um, and But we all at Adara really firmly believe that it's a conversation that the sector needs to keep having. And we keep we talk about it quite a lot because of the model. Um, people often ask us the same question you just did, you know, around, well, where do you stand? You know, you're, if the businesses are paying this um, these costs. So I think um, many of your listeners are probably familiar with the TED Talk from Dan Pallotta, um, who's obviously kind of talked quite a lot about this. And if, if they haven't um, heard the TED Talk, I highly recommend having a listen. And 
I think he really delves into that debate in a way that um, really spoke to me as someone working in the sector and challenges some of these assumptions that overhead or admin costs should be kept low and that um, we need to stop associating frugality with morality <laughs> like just because a not-for-profit is being frugal with their admin costs doesn't necessarily mean that that is the right thing to do and I think I, the example that sticks with me from his TED talk is you know you could have a cake stall that has five percent overhead but that makes 71 dollars or you might have a huge charity that invests 40 percent in admin but makes 71 million dollars so if you think about those kind of the scale of um of success that you can have by investing often in fundraising or admin and overhead um, and he poses a question, which do you think a person who is hungry would prefer more, you know, 71 or 71 million? So I think I recommend that TED Talk. And, um, yeah, as, as Adarians, we, could, we are very firm in our belief that admin and infrastructure is critical. So Yeah, and I will include a link to that TED Talk in the show notes because it is a really good one. And I, I completely agree with the point that you've made. I mean, rigorous uh, administrative structures help to ensure the quality of your projects and at the end of the day quality projects is what we all want to have so it does make a lot of sense yeah um the other point i wanted to talk about with regards to adara's structure an increasing number of not-for-profits are adding a social enterprise component to their work it's becoming more common and I, I think a part of this is due to the fundraising fatigue that I think a lot of Australians feel. Um, it's unfortunate, but we are being asked by so many organisations to donate and support, and there's only so much we can do uh, financially. So I think a lot of not-for-profits are realising this and recognising that they need a more sustainable model of, of bringing in a revenue, and a social enterprise is a great way to do that if it works. Um, so what would you say to organisations in the sector that are considering uh, setting up a social enterprise? Um, I mean, this isn't necessarily my area of expertise, so, but I can talk about what it's like, I guess, to work for an organization that has this model. And, and as I said, it's it can be highly beneficial for your organization to have, like I said, that kind of financial viability underpinned where for Adara, we're not entirely funded by our businesses, but they do so much for us and give us so much freedom um, to do the work that we do. I think what I've really noticed with Adara and, and observing kind of other social enterprises in the sector is there's a real importance to make sure that you have um, a, a unique service offering. So, like I said, the idea of pro bono and investment banking together, that was not something that was kind of out there in the sector. Um, a structure for investment bankers to use their skills for purpose didn't really exist. Um, and so, we had something unique to offer um, the sector. And I think observing some uh, some social enterprises and, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that have been incredible and we have so much respect for so many in the sector. I could name a handful, but I think um, sometimes I think that if your service offering isn't unique and you're not, you don't have something special or different to offer um, is when they're likely to fail. So I think finding a niche is really important. I think the other thing um, is, you know, our model worked because we had Audan as well. And so we had a, a, an incredible person who was 
really clear on her mission, which was to give 100% of the profits of her business away. That's a pretty unique person, I think. Um, I think that, you know, a lot a lot of um, social enterprises, um, you just need to be really clear on your mission, I think, and make sure that everyone involved is aligned on the mission. And that will be a big key to success. So, I would, I would certainly encourage not-for-profits to explore this, but making sure that you have a unique service offering so that the business can thrive and also making sure that, um, yeah, you have an aligned vision and that everyone's very clear on what it is, is really important. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how helpful this is. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really helpful. And alignment is the key word there for me, is ensuring yeah. that whatever social enterprise you're offering is aligned with, with your mission and the work that you're doing. And as you said, they can all be so different. We had... Elliot Costello on the show a few weeks ago, and Elliot is the co-founder and former CEO of YGAP, um, Youth Generation Against Poverty, and their social enterprise, they've got a couple now, but one of them is Feast of Merit, which is a fantastic cafe in Melbourne, and that cafe manages to fund a lot of their work. So a totally different model to yours, but it aligns really well with what they do. That's right. Yeah. As a social enterprise. And that's what's really important. So I guess the big question here for me then is broadly, how can we support the private sector to work better with the not-for-profit sector? It's the million dollar question that is the premise of this entire <laughs> podcast. Uh, but how, what would you say to that? I, I mean, I think the point of alignment is critical. So finding organizations that are aligned in values, in line in mission is critical. Um, for Adara, we've had some incredible business partnerships outside of our own, obviously, model. Um, we partner with Deloitte and Minter Ellison, two amazing companies in Australia who have provided us with an incredible secondment model. So they send... Um, staff to us on a year-long secondment to work in our teams. And this is, this type of model is incredible because it is it is a truly mutually beneficial partnership. For Adara, we get these incredible, highly skilled people who come and fill a gap in our teams, in our legal teams, our finance teams, and our corporate advisory teams. Um, so we have three secondments each year. They come and add so much value, bring their knowledge and skills, but they also gain so much from the experience. They learn about different sectors that they haven't worked in. I always joke with our legal secondees that they're, you know, they're learning about Ugandan law or Nepali law in a way that they would never have had exposure to in their other roles and in different sectors of the law that affect not-for-profits and the business side. So, these partnerships have been incredible for both sides. And I think that is um, something that's really important. And what I often see, I think, with um, business partnerships is that you, you do, what you don't want to do is be a resource drain on an organization that's already resource poor. And I think sometimes these partnerships make work for not-for-profits. They're trying to find a, a role for a business or they're trying to find a way that they can help. And instead of adding value, it's like it's creating more, <laughs> more work for them. So, you know, making sure that it's you're doing it for the right reasons, that it's not just to tick a box on your CSR um, report in your annual report and making sure that it's truly beneficial for both sides, I think is really critical. Um, and, you know, we've had other corporate partners. We partner with an insurance company for, this is our 11th year of partnership with this insurance company called Aspen based out of the UK. Um, and it for them, it's been this incredible HR tool where they've motivated their teams around a common cause, which is Adara. And so, each year, 
eight of their staff come and see the work that they support. They go back as ambassadors into their com- company. The staff fundraise. The company gives a significant donation. It's been a great um, resource for them. They said it's the best HR um, initiative they've ever had. And for us, it's been incredible, the funds that they've raised for our work. So, I think that alignment and making sure that both sides are seeing a benefit out of it is really critical. Yeah. And, and with the example of Aspen Insurance, it's it's clear that the staff want to be a part of something really meaningful. And I think that's really common across the board in the in the private sector, that staff want to know that they're participating in something really meaningful and, and productive and useful. And I think it's yeah. great for an organisation like Deloitte as, and Minter Ellison as well, that, you know, this is something I'm sure their staff get really excited about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what for, for Aspen in particular, they've said that they they had a lot of companies merge at the same time. So quite a fractured organization at the point where we started working with them. They have offices all over the world, um, spread out staff, but to have something that unifies everyone around a common goal and that is for purpose, that purpose piece that everyone is so hungry for, I think has been incredibly beneficial for their staff. And they really love that their company does so much for people people in need and um, huge motivator. (laughs) It is a huge motivator. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Adara's work now in the area of global health. Um, Can you talk, I know that you've recently returned from Uganda, so perhaps you can reflect on that trip. What would be some of the biggest challenges facing the healthcare system in Uganda at the moment? Yeah, um, I just returned actually about five days ago from Uganda um, where I was working on the ground with our teams and our partner, Chuoka Hospital, which is this incredible little hospital um, in central Uganda that Adara's partnered with for the past 20 years. Um, and over that time, we've really developed our expertise and, and passion for the area of maternal newborn child health. And although the Ugandan health system faces many challenges, I think that um, maternal Maternal and newborn health in particular are, are some of the biggest challenges facing not really just Uganda, but the developing world. And if you look at some of even the stats, so, a, you know, for instance, a woman in Uganda has a one in 47 lifetime risk of maternal death. Um, compare that to Australia. We have a one in 8,700 chance of maternal death. So there is so much work that needs to be done um, for women. And and for newborns, it's even more dire. So with the Millennium Development Goals, we the world halved child deaths under five, but we didn't really make a dent in newborn deaths. And so today we're at the point where 46% of all deaths of children under five happen in the first 28 days. So there is so much that we can do um, to, to work with women and newborns that's going to make a huge difference across the health sector um, and give them it's you know an opportunity to contribute to their economies and to support their countries in a way that um, currently they cannot because of these huge mortality. And so um, we're really passionate about this area. And, and when Adara started in Uganda, we... Um, initially started doing kind of primary healthcare, going out into the community, delivering immunizations. But what we found was that there was this huge cry for the community for these services. And we saw that babies were dying from things like jaundice that, you know, you need UV lights to treat. And these nurses were standing outside holding babies up to the sun, trying to save their lives because they didn't have the equipment or supplies that they needed or, or sitting them on the windowsill in the in the maternity unit, trying to get those rays of sun. And 
so many things that can be done with really simple interventions. And so Adara um, kind of started um, working in, in this area and quite unpopular idea at the time, decided to start a neonatal intensive care unit. So anyone who's um, who's had a baby born preterm in Australia or who, whose baby is a bit sick has probably had experience with a NICU. Um, this is where the sickest and smallest babies go. And the idea that you would try and deliver that level of care in a, in a um, country or in a setting like Uganda 20 years ago was um, kind of unheard of. So it was one of the first NICUs established in the developing world. And it has been um, one of the highlights of Adara and one of the things I'm most proud of working for this organization. So we have 90% survival in our unit now. We see 1,200 babies a year and survival for our tiniest, tiniest little newborns. So those weighing less than 2.5 kilos has increased from around 31% to 88% since 2005. So we are seeing these huge gains in survival and very simple interventions that can make such a big difference. And so I think for us, the world, we think the world has a lot to, <laughs> to learn and we are, um, and, and the world is really interested now, I think, in newborn health because we, we saw so little progress during the Millennium Development Goals. So, um, so I was in Uganda working alongside our teams. We're launching a new program with our NICU um, and trying to follow up these babies after they're discharged and seeing how they, you know, making sure they're not just surviving, but that they're thriving after they leave the hospital. So it was a wonderful trip. And um, Adara's work um, in Uganda is really focused in this area um, around maternal newborn child health. We have three and a half thousand women through the maternity ward every year, 1,200 babies in the NICU, immunizing about 12,000 kids a year um, through our community outreach work. So really proud of that work. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Those statistics are heartbreaking and it is so, so encouraging to see the incredible work that Adara Development is doing. Uh, clearly such an important issue. You mentioned that the neonatal intensive care unit was very unpopular at first, mm. was it unpopular because people didn't understand the depth of issues with regard to newborn health? I think so. And I think um, there was just a belief that you couldn't deliver a level of tertiary care in a remote setting um, like intensive care for newborns. It was kind of thought that that, that couldn't be done, that in, if you weren't in an urban setting or you weren't... Um, yeah, you weren't working in in a more developed country that you couldn't deliver the level of care. And and what we really found was not only could we do it, but that the nurses and um, the Ugandan staff were hungry for this knowledge. You know, they were, like I said, holding babies up to the sun to try and save their lives. They were desperate for the equipment, the skills and the training that they needed to save these babies. And now the, the unit is staffed by 40 of the most incredible nurses you'll ever meet, um, an all Ugandan team who who just are dedicated to saving newborn lives. So I think it was really for Adara, a lot of the work that we do is about modeling the possible. You know, we are, we're not a giant organization. We don't have 50 NICUs, but what we have is a, a world-class NICU. It's a, considered a center of excellence in newborn care. And so we have people visiting from all over the world to come and see the work that that's happening there. And so we, you know, we try and build these models of possi possibility so that um, we can show that we can, we can save these little babies and have a big difference. 
That's such an important point too, that not-for-profits that are not necessarily working at a very large scale can do things to an incredibly high standard at a small scale and in doing so teach other organisations how to do the same. I just think that's so important. Yeah, Odette always describes it as we're um, we're a hundred meters deep and a hundred mile a hundred miles deep, sorry, and and a hundred miles wide. So we're not reaching, um, we're not spread out all across the world, but we have really great depth of service, and we're really embedded in the grassroots of the communities we work in. Um, and I think, yeah, the NICU is really testament to that. Yeah. We had Caitlin Barrett on the show a few weeks ago as well. Um, As you know, Caitlin is the CEO of Love Mercy, and we talked about some of the challenges of working in Uganda. And one of the greatest ones is that the the history of conflict in the country is, is not too... Uh, is you know relatively recent and and years of conflict definitely plague a country's long-term development efforts. Do you see that in Uganda being an issue? Yeah, I mean, I think for Adara, the the area we work was was considered the killing fields of the civil war. So um, the Luero Triangle was kind of right in the central central region was where um, so much death and destruction happened, and I think. For Adara, we, our work kind of started probably 10 years after the conflict ended. Um, but there's still, obviously, that a conflict like that has a deep impact on a community. Um, I think what I will say is the Ugandan people are some of the most resilient, upbeat, positive, loving um, people I have ever encountered. And I'm constantly amazed by their resilience and you know, I, I I sometimes say to people like it should be a country plagued by PTSD. You know, I don't understand how how these people have just you know really lifted themselves and their community and um, are just persevering and and so resilient despite all the challenges that they face and despite this awful history. So, I I definitely think it's had an impact. But I think um, I would say that. They are a resilient country of amazing people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's a that's a great way to describe it. Now, the other country that you're working in is Nepal, mm-hmm. and you're doing remote community development work. As you said, very remote community <laughs> development work. So, can you talk about how the earthquake affected the work that you're doing, and how you have assisted in the rebuilding efforts? Yeah, sure. So, um, as I mentioned early on. Um, Adara works in very remote places and the most remote project we have is in a place called Humla, which is um, Humla's right up on the border of Tibet in the northwest corner of the country and um, when we started it was yeah 21 days of hiking to get there, now it's a bit shorter about 8 days of hiking and our work up there is led by the most incredible man called Angjuk Lama who's a Humli man who was you know, this incredible guy who got a Fulbright scholar went to the US and has returned to his village in Humla to to lead development there. And he runs an incredible team who are really working to change the quality of health and education services available to remote communities. Um, and these communities are so often forgotten, even um, by the government of their own country, because delivering service in a setting like this is incredibly hard. Um, but Odette um, started her work up there 20 years ago. She went to Nepal and said, I want to go to the place that's the hardest to work in, that has the least NGOs doing work there. And everyone said to her, 
well, there's this place called Humla, but you probably don't want to go there. It's really difficult. There's a lot of issues. And um, anyone who knows Odette will know that was like a red flag to a bull. She was like, well, that's where I'm going then. <laughs> um, and so we've been up there ever since. And um, our first project up there was at a school called the Yalbang School. It's a government school that we've partnered with the government on. And it is incredible. It is um, now, um, yeah, has 300 kids and is just doing incredibly well. So, um, just as an example, last year it was named the number one remote school in the country. And out of 30,000 government schools in the country, it's the fifth best school. And it is in the middle of nowhere, like up in the mountains, the fifth best school in the country. So, we're incredibly proud of this school um, and the work that we've done up there. The earthquake actually didn't affect Humla, thank goodness. Um, it, the epicenter was closer to Kathmandu, the capital. But for Adara and our teams, our teams in Kathmandu, almost all of them lost their homes. Um, it was incredibly devastating. And yet, despite that, um, I think they're incredibly heroic people. They, Our team had medical camps running within two days after the earthquake. So in the months following the earthquake, they treated 10,000 people um, doing outreach mobile medical camps um, just to deal with some of the trauma, the psychological distress, um, and some of the injuries that were encountered. So that work was really amazing. Um, and early on after the earthquake, Adara was approached by the government to work in a area called Gangfedi, which is in the Nuwakot district. And the reason that they asked us to go there is that Gangfedi is quite remote, like Kumla, even though it's a lot closer to Kathmandu, it's very inaccessible and quite difficult to get to, quite mountainous. And so because of our expertise in that area, the government said, put Adara go and do some work there. So Gangfeti is an interesting place and it um, it suffered a lot, 100%. Every single building was destroyed. 10% of the population died um, and just huge devastation. And the other kind of tricky part about Gangfeti is it is the epicenter of child trafficking in Nepal. Um, so Adara, some of our work in Humla, we had worked with in child trafficking before, quite different circumstances. We had 136 kids in our care who'd been trafficked during the Civil War from Humla, um, who, whose parents had been told, you know, give us some money and we'll take your kids to safety and put them in good boarding schools. And we're kind of taken advantage of by traffickers who then either sold them or put them in orphanages or terrible situations. So we had this experience in trafficking as well, which was another reason we kind of were drawn to Gangfeti. Trafficking in Gangfeti is quite different. It's, um, it's organized crime. It is actively selling of children. And so um, Adaro has to tread pretty carefully around that area. So initially our work in the community was just around providing shelter because the monsoon was coming pretty quickly after the earthquake, providing food, providing emergency health. But we knew from our work with the Yelbang School, which is, like I said, an incredible remote school, that we could really make a big change for this community through education. And so um, Adara um, worked to build a new government school in Gangfeti um, that could cater for 300 students. We already have 350 enrolled. Um, so the school has been an incredible success. And one of the big things that we're excited about with this school is that it is um, a subtle way of undermining trafficking, giving girls opportunities 
to be educated, giving them the opportunity to go to school and to help their parents see the value in them having an education is a, is a way that we can combat trafficking. And I think already we've we've had no reported incidents of trafficking this year. It also helps us to keep, you know, um, having a really good school helps us keep registers. We can kind of see if kids are missing and things like that, which helps us keep a, um, a handle on it. So um, we're so excited about this school and the kids are just so adorable. You see them lining up every morning. They all have a toothbrush and they brush their teeth first thing. And there's signs up all around the school about girls being the future. And it's just, it's a beautiful place. Um, and really taking that expertise from Humla and trying to apply it in a different, a different community. And what a testament to the success of your work that the government approached you and, uh, and asked you to do it. That, that, that is, that's such a beautiful story. Yeah, so um, that's that's kind of where we've worked with the earthquake. And for Humla now our work is really around for earthquake prevention. We want to make sure everything is safe and secure for the communities in case there's ever a situation where um, that community is affected, like Kathmandu. Yeah, yeah and, and I suppose, you know, when you say, like in, in Gangfeti, that 100% of the infrastructure was destroyed – it says a lot about how poorly it was built in the first place and really that the next steps need to be to build earthquake resilient infrastructure, uh, which mm. I, I know is happening in, in communities all over the world. Yeah, and it's a big challenge, um, especially for remote communities, because one of the biggest issues is getting in supplies. So for Humla, you know, you bring them in on yaks. It's very difficult to bring in a lot of building supplies on yaks. So a lot of buildings are built using local materials that they can find. And so I think that's also like that is critical. And, you know, the school we built in Gangfeti is earthquake resistant. Everyone in the community is getting training on how to rebuild their house in an earthquake resistant fashion. But I think the reality for many remote communities, and if you're not in an urban community, you're already much more significantly disadvantaged, but just getting the supplies you need to build an earthquake-resistant structure is actually quite a challenge. <laughs> yes, so true. Now, there's one question I want to ask you before we finish up today. In 10 years' time, where would you like Adara to be? It's a great question. Um, I mean, Adara, we have a bold vision. Our vision is that each and every person has access to quality health and education and other essential services no matter where they live. And I think that is why we go to remote and difficult to reach communities and tackle issues that are not always um, at the top of the agenda for other organisations. Um, so in 10 years, I think... Um, I would love to see our businesses growing even more. I think they're already on that trajectory and Adara Partners is really modeling what an amazing business can be. One of our panel members, Guy Fowler, recently said, this is my best use. And I think if we can get more business people to have that moment of and that feeling and that passion for the work that they do, I think that could be amazing. <laughs> um, so that would be great if we can expand our businesses. I think one of the Adara's big focuses, as I said is kind of sharing our knowledge um, to reach more people in need. So in 10 years, I'd love to see more NICUs <laughs> popping up. Um, I'd love to see more work, there, more models, schools in remote areas showing what a, what a quality remote school can look like. Um, we are, Adara is currently scaling our newborn work. We're working in government facilities in Uganda to try and improve newborn training in these facilities. So I'd love to see 
lower mortality for, for newborns across the world. Um, and another thing that I'm really excited about that is a project we're working on at the moment with a few partners like Path, a, a big NGO out of the US and the University of Washington is a device called Bubble CPAP. So um, this is a device that helps newborn babies breathe. It is um, the number one killer of preterm babies is respiratory distress syndrome. So they can't inflate their own little lungs. And so what Bubble CPAP does is puts enough pressure in their lungs so that they don't have to work so hard to breathe. And this device that we've created with PATH requires no power to run. Um, so in these low resource settings, that's really important. It also blends air and oxygen. So currently this climate of technology is delivered with 100% oxygen, which can cause babies to go blind. And it also costs about $10. So it's affordable. Um, and so I've, I'd love to see our, this bubble CPAP rolled out in facilities across the world. It could save millions of lives. So um, that's another piece that we're really excited about. That is a really exciting vision. And Maddie, with you as the programs manager, I have no doubt you can do all those things. So thank you. Thank you so much for for being such an inspiration and for the incredible work that you do. It is so encouraging to hear about Adara and and I think that the sector can learn a lot of lessons from what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having us on. And I think, um, yeah, we commend you for the amazing podcast and for getting all these stories out there and, and trying to look at different ways for this for two amazing sectors, the business sector and the not-for-profit sector to work together. I think it's going to be critical for us reaching the SDGs and it's really important. I agree. Thanks so much, Maddie. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.